Uh, just want to acknowledge, we've done this a couple times in the service in the last couple of weeks uh, with, with prayer several weeks ago, and then a couple of references in, in some of the sermons, some of the texts that we've been studying have been very applicable to this. But, but some of you have been asking, you know, how can we pray? Uh, what should we think and how should we pray related to Israel and Gaza? How do we, how do we respond? How do we, what do we do in this moment? And anytime moments like these happen, particularly global world events like this, it should do exactly what this text is, is forcing us to do. And that is first, to look inward, to evaluate our own hearts, to inspect, am I right with God? Do I have a relationship with him or am I a performer, a play actor, as we'll see this morning? And then it should also cause us to repent, to keep a short account with God and to scour the word even, even more deeply. And then lastly, it should cause us to, to pray. That's what we should do. That's what we must do. And you say, well, what should I pray? How do I pray? I don't know what all the politics and I don't know all the sides and I don't understand what to pray. You pray the word. And when you run out of words from the word, you ask the spirit, please give me the words. Please pray on my behalf. Intercede. I don't have a clue what to pray. And so I'd like us to take just a moment this morning and let's do that. I know we just had a time of prayer for local ministries and missions. I want us to pray right now for the context that we find ourselves in. Can't have enough prayer. So let's pray. And I'm going to pray the word. These are, these are scriptures. These are verses from the Bible that I'm going to pray with us right now. So let's do that. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we saw just a few weeks ago Peter quote Psalm 1, and, and the question of Psalm 1 is why do the nations rage? We know why the nations rage. We know ultimately, though they rage against one another, they're raging against you and your anointed and appointed Messiah, King Jesus. Lord, we know that though they rage, they are raging against you. And we also know that you are sovereign over every nation, as it tells us in 2 Chronicles. You are sovereign over every king, every ruler, every nation on planet Earth. There's no one that escapes your knowledge, no one that escapes your view. We know from Ephesians 1.1 that you are ruling every detail, managing every detail throughout human history, all for the purposes of your will, your glory. We know from Daniel 4, we know from Isaiah 40 that you are the one that appoints the kings and the rulers of the earth, even kings and rulers that do not honor you. And while you appoint them, you also can bring them low. We know that you direct the decisions of every king according to Proverbs, according to multiple places. You tell us that though we think we're making the decisions, you are directing our every thought like streams in your hand. And for all these reasons, you tell us, therefore, to pray, to plead to you on behalf of rulers and leaders of our own nation and of the world. And you, you say through Paul to Timothy, we pray so that we might live in peace. So Lord, we do. We beg you to give wisdom where wisdom is lacking, to give discernment where discernment is lacking. We beg you 
to humble where humility is lacking. And in praying for the nations and the rulers and the leaders, we offer up our trust to you. We don't have all the right answers. We don't have all the right solutions. We don't have all of the wisdom. But we know that you do. So hallowed be your name. Revered be your name. Great be your name and your glory. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray this, we offer up our trust to you. We humble ourselves under your sovereign hand, as Peter says. And we cast all our anxieties, all the fears of, is this the end? All the fears of, what about? All the fears of, and anxieties that come with wars and rumors of wars. We cast them on you. And we ask, Lord... That every raging nation and every raging heart, even the raging hearts in this very room, humble themselves, repent, and turn to you and hope in you. Kiss the Son, as Psalm 1 says, and find refuge in Him. We know, Lord, as Paul says about himself in Acts chapter 26, that he, though a terrorist, with a raging fury against you and your saints... We know that if you can convert him, you can convert anyone, any raging heart, and we ask you to do it. Now, Holy Spirit, as we know from John 16, we ask you to come and bring to remembrance all that Jesus taught. We ask you to come and to teach us, to convict us of sin, convict us of sin. Convict us of righteousness, where righteousness, true righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And convict us of judgment, the judgment that is to come for anyone who does not hope in Jesus, just like our text this morning. Please, Lord, teach us. Holy Spirit, open your word to us that we might understand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and this is a story about Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you're familiar with it. This will be High Giving Sunday. Ananias and Sapphira gave, but they only gave a portion, and they were struck dead. And there's a lot of confusion about this text, and this text is actually misapplied and misused in a lot of churches for that very reason. You better give, or God's going to get you. It's like the sign on, the high, on I-65, you better go to church, or Satan's going to get you. This is, you better give, or God's going to get you. That's how it's often misapplied. But that's not exactly what this text is about. What's amazing is, and and you need to remember, we all need to remember, is where we're at in the context. The context says that we are at about 5,000 households. Remember that earlier in Acts, it says there were about 3,000 men added, and then later 5,000 men added. To indicate that it was men, it doesn't say anything about women or children. That's likely an indication that these are households. 5,000 households have believed in the gospel, have been transformed and redeemed by Jesus Christ. The Spirit is working. The Spirit is transforming. The church is exploding. And now for the first time, we see that the church is not facing simply an external threat, which they have up to this point from religious leaders, from Pharisees, Sadducees, from those who oppose the anointed, the Messiah, 
It's been external threats. Now there is an internal threat the church must be aware of. It's the internal threat that every church faces, that every believer faces, and that is a a heart, a sinful heart, that is unyielded to King Jesus. And this is an important strategic historical moment because we see this serious reaction, the serious response of God, the holiness of God. Ananias and Sapphira die, and there's a strategic specific reason it happens now in the life of the church that we're going to see this morning. And so as we study this this morning, we need to understand the story. We need to see it. We need to know what's happening here. If we're not familiar with it, we need to familiarize ourselves with it. And then we need to explore the implications of this text and also that we see how Ananias and Sapphira actually in the negative point us to Jesus, point us to the gospel. And so let's understand this story first. To understand this text, we have to go back just a little bit to our text last week. And we see last week, really it's not meant to be pulled apart. Often when we study the scriptures, it's hard because we, we study little pericopes, little sections of the text. And, and, and we pull them apart so that we can deep dive into certain aspects of each text. But these two stories of Barnabas, the story we studied last week, and Ananias and Sapphira this week aren't intended to be pulled apart. They're intended for contrast, for comparison. There is an explicit comparison in the text between Barnabas, who had a field and sold it and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. All of that language is in Ananias and Sapphira, but there's an added nuance, a difference between Ananias and Sapphira. They had property, which is field. They had a field also. They sold it, but they kept back a portion for themselves. And they laid a portion at the apostles' feet. It's the keeping back the portion for themselves that is the distinction from Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. Encourager, he's the pouring out one. The one that pours out positive words, encouragement. He also is pouring out blessings. He's also pouring out his resources. Ananias and Sapphira are not Barnabas. Ananias and Sapphira are holding back something. They're, they're holding back something to themselves, for themselves, it says in the text. And we need to understand the issue isn't about giving or that they didn't give enough. I'm going to let you off the hook. It's not about giving or that they didn't give enough, that they only gave a portion. The text makes it clear that's not what it's about. Peter asked twice in verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Was that field not your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The resources, the, 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 the profits from it, was it not at your disposal? In other words, twice there, Peter is, is saying and teaching us and reminding us that all the giving we've seen up to this in Acts, all the way up to chapter 5, all of it's been voluntary. No one has mandated that they sell these fields and property and, and resources, and no one has mandated that they give all of it. It's all been voluntary. It's all been gospel giving. It's all been from the joy of what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And it has overflowed into, I can't help but give on in response. Here's my words. Here's my time. Here's my energy. Here's my efforts. Here's my home. All of it is gospel giving. But that's not what's happening here. That's not what is on display. If they wanted to sell their property and give only a portion of it, that's not the problem. It's that they kept back a portion, and what's implied in the text multiple times is that they lied about what they actually gave. They didn't just 
keep back a portion. They lied about what they actually gave. The issue in this text is about deceit and hypocrisy in the heart. Deceit and hypocrisy in the heart. Ananias and Sapphira sold their property. They kept back a portion for themselves, but they went further than that. They went further and they lied to others about how much they gave and they led them to believe that they gave all. All of the proceeds. So it's about deceit and hypocrisy. We see it's about deceit in the text because Peter says three different ways, three different times, lie and contrive. Verse 3 says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? That, that means that you had a deceitful desire and you allowed it to fester. You meditated on it. You, you planned. It was premeditated what you did to deceive. And then verse 4c, that you have not lied to man, but to God. The Greek word for lie means to lie, what we would assume it means. But it means for more than that, it means to pretend with the intent to deceive. To pretend with the, with the intent to deceive. So, so lying is an issue here, but hypocrisy is the issue. Hypocrisy. And we see that in the phrase kept back, and that's mentioned twice in verse 2 and 3. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back, there's the second time, for yourself part of the proceeds? Now that word, the Greek word for the phrase keep back, is an interesting word. It means to embezzle or to misappropriate funds, which is like a nice way of saying to steal. That's exactly how it's used. The only other time it's used in the New Testament, in Titus, it's, it's to pilfer or to steal. So, so Peter is saying, what on earth were you thinking in stealing this money? Now here's the question we have to ask. It should lead us to the natural question. How is it possible to embezzle or to steal what belongs to you? I mean, I don't know if you look at your checking account or your savings account. How do you steal from your own savings account? How do you steal from your own checking account? You can't. So it implies, it says, it tells us by the use of that word what Peter is accusing Ananias and Sapphira of. Somewhere along the way, they pledged to give all. They sold the field, and then they kept a portion, and they only gave a portion and laid it at the apostles' feet while they led everyone else to believe that they gave everything. So in other words, they're embezzling and stealing, not from their own money, but from money they promised, they committed, that they said that they were going to give while leading others to believe that they gave the whole thing. So they're acting in a hypocritical manner. They are acting in a way that is deceitful in what they're doing. They're embezzling. They're stealing. The text makes it clear it was not an accident. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias sold the field with his wife's knowledge. That's in verse 1. She knew. They conspired together. They contrived in their hearts together. They plotted and planned in, in this together. 
to sell a field, keep a portion, and only give a portion while pretending that they gave everything. So the issue, the deceit and hypocrisy that's, that's here is that they only gave a portion of the proceeds while leading everyone else to, to believe that they gave everything. So based on some motive that's not clear in the text, we can probably infer based on some motive that's wrapped up in a mixture of their own pride and their own idolatry. They sold, they kept back, and they only gave a portion in order to pretend like they gave everything. I appreciate what John Stott says here. He says they wanted the credit and the prestige. They wanted the status, the approval, the recognition, the reputation of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience. Some mixture of pride and idolatry. Think about what they've just seen. They've seen Barnabas give everything. They've seen the power of the Holy Spirit on the community. And they want a piece of it. They want the credit, the recognition, the reputation as being sacrificial, generous givers when they are not in reality. There is a subtle and providential irony also in what we're hearing here when we study their names. Sapphira means beautiful, and Ananias means God is gracious. But in the text, they are anything but beautiful and gracious. Instead, they are ugly thieves. And it's that irony or hypocrisy that's on display in this text. They, what they are on the outside is not who they are in the heart. How they're pretending, hypocrisy means to play act, how they're pretending, how they're acting on the outside, the words they're using, the religious performance that they're displaying to others, it, it, what they're doing on the outside is not who they are on the inside. That's the emphasis of the text. That's the... That's what's going on here. That's what Peter is accusing them of. That's why it's so serious and so stark and, re and, and receives such a strong rebuke and condemnation. What they appear to be on the surface is not who they are in the heart. They stand in stark contrast to the spirit-filled believers that we've been reading about up to this point. They stand in stark contrast to all those who've been filled with the Spirit and therefore, as a response to the giving of, of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit, they respond with lavish open-handedness with everything that they are and with everything that they... That's not how Sapphira and that's not how Ananias are responding here. Peter makes it clear that they are responsible for their actions, but he points to the origination of their actions, where their actions originated. He says they originate with the one that the Bible tells us is the father of lies, John 8, 44. The one that Jesus says came to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10, 10. And that's why Peter goes right at the source, the origination of this lie and deception and hypocrisy. Why has Satan, the father of lies, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In the context of four chapters about that we've read about people filled with the Spirit and motivated to give all in response, we now have two people that are filled with the lies of Satan and focused on themselves. Do you see the contrast? The, the contrast is stark. The text is startling, and when we study the contrast, the contrast is startling. 
And it's intended for that reason. We're seeing in this moment, it's, it's, it's intended to capture our attention and to shock us. It offers us a, complete, a, a clear contrast and comparison between the way of sinful man and the way of the one who is redeemed. It offers us a, a clear contrast between the father of lies and our father in heaven. It offers us a clear contrast between Satan and our Savior. It offers a clear con- a contrast between Psalm 1, the man who delights in the commands of God and thereby is blessed and experiences life, and the wicked who delights in their flesh and their own sins, and they're like chaff and they experience death. They're blown away. What happens to Ananias and Sapphira? There is a clear contrast in this text that's intended to capture our attention. This is not like what we've been reading. Do you at least see that? This is what's going on here. Something's different and unique about these individuals, and that is an important distinction that we're intended to see. They're not concerned with God's honor. They're concerned with their own honor. They're not concerned with God's glory. They're concerned with their own glory. They're not concerned with giving to the poor. They're concerned with giving to themselves. And that's exactly what they do. And everything that they're doing, it's the antithesis. It's the opposite of Jesus. It's the opposite of who he is. It's the opposite of what he came to do. It's the opposite of what he does for you and I. They hold back. And that stands in stark opposition and contrast to what Jesus does on our behalf. So that leads us to some implications that we need to see, and there's several of them, and each of these could be a sermon in and of itself, which I know alarms you. Is he going to preach all six of these sermons right here? No, but I do think it's worth bringing up and then us spending our days and weeks going down the rabbit hole of each of these implications. The first thing that, that, why, that we have to ask, why do we get this story, and why here? At this point in church history, in this point in Acts, Why? Why do we get the story and why here? The first thing that this shows us, an implication of the text, and I think it should be so encouraging to all of us, is Luke the writer, the Holy Spirit, the the author, the Bible, at no point, in no way, hides the failures and the flaws of the church. It at no point hides the failures and the flaws of God's people. It shows us the honesty of the Bible here. Think back to all the stories. The Bible doesn't wash over Abraham and Sarah who take things into their own hands and try to solve God's plan and timing and and put God on their calendar. It doesn't wash over that lack of faith. It doesn't wash over Moses the murderer or David the adulterer or Jonah the reluctant prophet. It doesn't wash over Naaman the arrogant or Israel the stubborn or Nicodemus the the fearful who came to Jesus by night or Zacchaeus the tax collector who took everything from everyone or Peter the denier of Jesus or Paul the prosecutor of the church, the persecutor and prosecutor of the church, the one that says that he raged with fury towards those who believe. It doesn't wash over any of that. It shows us all of that, and it doesn't hide this in the life of the church in this moment. Which shows us that the gospel is real, and it is relatable, and it is for sinners just like you and I. This should be so encouraging for us. It shows us the power of the gospel to rescue and to redeem and transform, and for God to even work through 
difficult circumstances and even sinful people. Because later in the text, what happens? But great fear is said twice. It said, great fear fell upon all who heard about this story. And in the last verse, verse 11, it says, great fear fell upon all who heard and the church. So in other words, believers and unbelievers all heard, all were fearful. They revered, they respected, they, they, they saw the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And it says in verse 14 that many, many, many men and women came to Christ as a result. So God can work through sinners just like you and I. He can work through sinful circumstances just like this. And in being honest, the second implication here, it also shows us that neither the Christian life nor life in the body is all roses and beautiful. Instead, what it shows us is that the Christian life is a struggle. It's a struggle individually, and then the, the life together in community is a struggle. It's a struggle. We are fighting sin within ourselves, and we are also fighting sin together. Between us, between one another, up until this moment in Acts, this is a significant observation of the text. As we study the text, we should ask these kind of questions like, what's going on here? Why now? Why here? Up to this moment in the text, we have not seen internal strife. We've seen external strife. Everything has been external to the church and to Christians. And now it's within the context of the community. Now it's within the context of the church. And that tells us something. The enemy does not just attack us from the outside. He also attacks from within. The enemy does not simply attack from the outside. The, the problem in the world is not simply, the problem is not just simply the world, the external world. The, the, the New Testament tells us that we fight not only a broken world, we are all in a fishbowl where the filter has gone off and it's full of algae. We also are in that same fishbowl with an enemy, his name is Satan, who would love to destroy us, to steal, kill, and destroy. And within that fishbowl of a broken world, we also fight fleshly desires. The enemy is not just out there, the, the enemy is also within. The issue is not simply external, the issue is also internal, and every single one of us must address our own hearts with the gospel. John Flavel, or Flavel, who was a Puritan writer, wrote a book called Keeping Your Heart. And in it, he equates the heart as a citadel, a fortress, that must be protected from outside forces and inside espionage. Is that not what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 7? The battle between the flesh and the spirit? What I want to do, I don't do. What I, I don't want to do, I do. This battle, this internal, what, who will rescue me from this wretched body, this wretched flesh? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. So as you and I are told in the scriptures repeatedly to put off the flesh, now that we've been rescued and redeemed, we are to put off the flesh, to put off sin, to cast off the old life, to die to self, and to put on Jesus Christ, to put on the attributes and characteristics of, of Jesus to put on, that's the language that Paul uses, as you and I are individually told to do that, we are also told to do that corporately. All of Romans 12 is in the context of corporate life together. 
So while I fight sin within, John Owen says, be killing sin or it will kill you. I'm to be every day diligent in fighting sin with the gospel, with the word, in step with the spirit. Romans 8, 13, I can't put the flesh to death. I can't put to death the flesh by the flesh. I have to put to death the flesh by the spirit. As I'm fighting sin within my heart, within my life, throwing off sin and putting on Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ, you are also doing that individually, and then we are also doing that together. We have to fight, strive to guard not only our own faith, but also the bride of Christ. We must be killing sin individually, and we must be killing it congregationally. And this is why Paul says that we are to, he urges us to repent of sin, to confess to one another to pursue love, to outdo one another with honor. And, and then he says in Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness and patience, endure with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We each have a responsibility to be guardians of the gospel and guardians of Christ's bride. Ephesians chapter 5 says that bride teaches us that bride is not pretty. The church is not pure and spotless, but Jesus desires to present her pure and spotless. And that he will present her pure and spotless on our day of glorification, on the day when he returns. He will do that. Until that day, we are to fight for her purity. We fight for it within ourselves, and we fight for it together. It means that we say no to things like gossip or discord. Or disunity. It means we fight that. We confront that. It means we say no to pretending within. What, what Peter's teaching us here, what we're te- learning here by, from Luke and, and Acts, is that our inward sin affects the community. And it can lead to overflow into the community. The spotlight of this text is on the inward attack of the inwardmost issue of our lives, namely the heart And that is what God desires more than our sacrifices. Go read Psalms. It's said over and over again. Psalm 51, Psalm 40. That he desires a contrite, a humble and contrite heart. Not our sacrifices. Our sacrifices overflow from a humble and contrite heart. Which leads us to a third reason we get this story, an implication. It reminds us of the whole story. The whole story of the Bible. It's a micro reenactment of the garden. Of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. This story recalls for us another time when Satan tempted a husband and a wife to disbelieve, distrust God, to think that his, his commands were not really all that serious and that important, and then to think, It's not that big a deal. We can handle it and take things into their own hands. You know the story. It's Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. It's Adam and Eve in micro. Remember the temptation there. Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, which is the language of what it says here in the text when he says, filled your heart. There's a crack in your heart, a fracture in your heart, and Satan has prayed on that fracture. There's a a bent desire in your heart that he's praying on in this moment. And, and, And what does he do? He comes and he... He says, did God actually say, introducing doubt, 
Does God actually know what's best for you? Did he really say that? And then what does he say? What's the second aspect of the temptation in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you can have everything in the garden, but you cannot have that one tree. For when you eat of that one tree, you will surely die. And what's the second temptation or accusation that, that Satan says to Adam and Eve after they respond to his first temptation? He says, you'll not surely die. He brings God's word into doubt, into disrespect. He, he completely contradicts God's word. Death won't be the result of this sin. Don't believe him. In fact, here's why you shouldn't believe him. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's keeping something back from you. God's keeping something back from you. He's hiding something. He doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to be. He doesn't want you, he doesn't, he doesn't want you to experience life. He's holding life back from you. No, life is found outside of him, out from under him. That's the temptation in the garden. And what's the result? It's the fall. It's sin. It's death. It's destruction. It's devastation. It's fracturing with God, fracturing within, and fracturing without with you and I. Now consider the context. As they rebelled, as they lifted their fists to God, as they thought in Genesis 3 that their wisdom was better than the wisdom of God, that they knew what was best for them, and what happens, sin enters the world, and it's passed down generationally from, to every descendant of Adam and Eve, Romans 5.12. Now consider the context. Just like Genesis, God created a beautiful world he filled it with his vice regents, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to experience life and obedience to him, and to pass it on generationally. Instead, they doubted God. They distrusted God. They believed that their wisdom was better to God than God's. They took things into their own hands, and sin was passed on to every descendant. Just like that, in this very moment, God has established his new creation community. He's filled it with gospel-transformed believers. He's told them to go, be fruitful, and multiply, replicate yourselves in the world, obedient sons and daughters of the Most High King. And in this moment, the question on the table is, will they? He told them to be fruitful and multiply, and the church is about to explode across the world. And in this moment, they are asked, they're being asked, they're being told, they're, they're being shown in this scene. The enemy has come and he's tempted and, and attempting to destroy. And if sin is tolerated in this moment, if sin is toyed with in this moment, it will be exported forever on. It will be exported into the next church that started in Antioch, the next church that started in Ephesus, the next church that started in Macedonia, the next church that started in Corinth. Will the church tolerate sin within its midst? Or will it confront sin where it sees it? Will it toy with sin, thinking there's not that big a deal here, it's not that big a deal? Or will it call it sin 
and see the, the, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and therefore pass it on throughout time. We receive this story because this is a historic moment in salvation history. As the gospel goes into places it's never been heard and churches are established, will those churches call individuals to repent of sin and turn to God? And when they do, will those churches call those believers to, to consistently and perpetually die to self and not pursue the deceitful desires of the heart? That's the question that the church is being shown here and asked here by this moment. And that leads us to a fourth implication, and that is it shows us the seriousness of sin. This story, why do we receive this? It shows us the seriousness of sin. Peter makes it clear that they haven't simply deceived one another. That's what Ananias and Sapphira thought. It's not that big a deal, and nobody's going to know, and you know, so what? And Peter goes right to the heart. It's not so what, and it is a big deal. You haven't simply deceived one another. You have lied to the Holy Spirit, which is to say what he says in the very next verse. You have lied to God. And then he goes further a third way in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed to test the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord? Their external actions and internal motives are high-handed and brazen. They are rebelling against God and God alone. That's what they're doing in this moment. And the consequences of sin is death. Just like Genesis 2.17, just like Romans, Paul tells us, the consequences of sin is death. And the text makes it clear. Twice in the text, it says they immediately breathed their last. Ananias and then Sapphira immediately breathed their last. And that phrase, immediately breathed their last, is only used three times in the New Testament. And all three times it's used in Acts. And all three times it's used of people who are robbing God of glory who are not concerned with the glory of God, but the glory of man. And they're struck dead. It shows us the seriousness of sin. And we might like to naturally explain this naturally, saying, well, you know, Ananias was found out, and he was so shocked by the embarrassment, he had a heart attack, which is how some would argue this text. You cannot argue this naturally when you have Ananias who dies, drops dead, immediately breathes his last, and you have another person immediately, three hours later, do the same thing. This is the supernatural act of God, the supernatural judgment of God on sin. And it's showing us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. He is that holy and sin is that serious. And then you have the speed. And what some would say is sort of the insensitivity here. The speed at which they're moved on. Ananias is moved out, wrapped up. The young men carry him out, and they go and they bury him. And it says in the text that they return just under three hours later. There's no serious ceremony. There's no grieving period. There's no family involved. In fact, when Sapphira shows up, it says she didn't even know. She was not even notified in this moment. And many point to this and say, this seems so heartless. This seems so insensitive. And I would ask, is it heartless or is it holiness? Is the speed at which they remove Ananias from their midst, is the speed at which he drops dead instantly, and the speed at which they remove him from their midst, is that intended to communicate something about the speed with which we are to resist and fight and flee sin? 
the speed is pointing us to how we are intended to resist sin. All of this shocks us. And that exists for a reason. That shock is purposeful. And that leads us to the fifth reason this story is given. It's to call us to repentance. Call every person who hears this to repentance. To call every person that hears this to look inward, to look at the heart, to inspect our own hearts. To ask the question, what are the motives in which I do the good things that I do? Am I doing them to perform, doing them for show, or am I doing them because of a contrite, humble heart before a holy God? Am I, doing, am I living among the people of God, but not actually one of the saints of God? It should cause every person that hears this to, to be humble, to, be, to quiver. That's exactly what happens with everyone who hears this story. Does it cause you to do that, or is it just another story that you just sort of read over and we just ignore? It should make us look inward at our hearts, and that's exactly what happens in this text. Many push back on this text. Many argue against this text. There's plenty of commentators that try to dismiss this text, and they push back on it saying, what about this? They didn't ever have a, a chance to repent. They didn't have, there's no chance for repentance here. And I would argue, and this ought to be most startling to all of us, I would argue that Ananias and Sapphira, if they are among this 5,000 households, then they've been there likely either in this range of the three to 5,000 or the first 3,000. They've been there. They've heard at least the first two sermons that Peter preached, which called for repentance and hope in Jesus Christ. If they gave anything, it's because they saw the church, they rubbed shoulders with the church, they saw Barnabas giving which ought to alarm all of us. Hearing sermons does not make us redeemed. Rubbing shoulders in God's people, God's house, does not make us redeemed. Giving does not make us redeemed. Our only hope, our only salvation, our only redemption is Jesus and Jesus alone. His blood and His righteousness. Where is your trust? Is it in your attendance record? Is it in your performance record? Is it in your giving record? Is it in your going record? Is it in your evangelism record? Is it in your missions record? Is it in yourself or is it in Jesus Christ? That's what this text is supposed to illuminate for us. We can be, there's a, a severe danger here that we should all be alerted to. We can be among the people of God, but not actually one of the saints. That should catch all of our attention and take our breath away. That should do exactly what this text does for everyone who hears it. What about me? What about my own sin? What about my own life before God? My, my sinfulness before a holy God? I've done something probably far worse than this. What's my hope? And that leads us to our last point. The hope for every single person, and that's the gospel. All of that leads us to this last and most important implication of this story. 
And it's amazing. It's, it's so amazing. And it's so beautiful how the Holy Spirit works in, in, in recording these things for us to teach us something ultimately about our only hope. Their story, their sin, their death in the negative is an example pointing us to our only hope, Jesus Christ. You say, where's the hope in this text? They drop dead. They sin, they drop dead. Where's the hope in that? What's this mean for me and my own sinfulness? What about me? And that's the point of the text. It's intended to capture your attention and force you to evaluate your own heart. And to ask that, what about me? in order to lead you to repentance, in order to lead you to hope in Jesus. And that's what happens here. And that's how it leads us to Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira look more like the father of lies than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about all the ways they look like that and how they point us in the negative to the beautiful positive of Jesus, the beautiful hope of Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira are concerned more with their own honor than they are with God's honor. What's Jesus' primary concern? He says that my, my father's will, my father's honor is, is my food. It's what sustains me. It's what I live for. They're more concerned with their own glory. Jesus is more concerned with the father's glory. They're more concerned with taking glory, getting glory. Look at me. Look at how much I gave. I, you know... Look, I'm awesome. Jesus is all about giving glory away. While Ananias and Sapphira are beautiful and gracious in name only, Jesus is beautiful and gracious in substance, in character, in nature, through and through. And here's the most startling comparison and contrast. Where Ananias and Sapphira sin, Jesus is sinless. Where Ananias and Sapphira hold back, keep back, Jesus lets go, pours out, relinquishes all, holds nothing back. Where Ananias and Sapphira hold back, keep back, and die, and you could argue a criminal's death by the speed, by the rapid nature of getting them out, burying them, no family, no fanfare, Jesus unleashed. And he died a criminal's death so that criminals like you and I could be set free. Where Ananias and Sapphira were taken up and taken out, Jesus was taken up and taken outside, Hebrews 13, 12, outside the camp so that you and I who were outside could be brought in. Ananias and Sapphira are pointing us by their selfishness to the selflessness of Jesus. And the question on the table is, who are you? Who will you hope in? Where is your trust? Yourself or Jesus? What's the end of that trust? It's death. It's life. As we close, as we end, we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to celebrate and we're going to remember his selflessness, his sacrifice on our behalf. We're going to remember his lavish generosity, his willingness to hold nothing back but to give all, to give his life for you and I. We're going to celebrate and remember his pouring out, the pouring out of his blood and the broken body that he was broken on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a time first to, to, to force us to do what this text forces us to do, and that's to ask the question, have I taken Jesus first before I take bread and I take wine or I take juice? Have I taken him in before I take this element in? Am I far from God? Am I just among? Am I play-acting and pretending? Or am I one of the saints, redeemed and rescued and reconciled by Jesus' lavish blood? And secondly, for those who have been redeemed, it, it calls us to evaluate, to, to inspect, to, to ask the question, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Are there areas of sin that I'm toying with? Are there corners and pockets of my life where, you know, Jesus, I'll give you all of this, but I won't give you that? Is there sin between us, one another, that needs to be confessed? It calls us to evaluate and to inspect and to confess. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not taken him in, today's the day of salvation. Not through the elements, but because he offers you life and invites you to come home. And there are people that want to tell you about that. We have some people today, if you're here and you want to be saved, we would love to tell you a little bit more about that. And we would love to, talk to, to walk you through that. Others of, you, others of us who ha, 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 need to take and partake, we need to confess first. We need to evaluate. And that might mean that we need to confess to one another. It might mean that we need to confess before God. And in that confession, we need to feel the relief of the good news of the gospel. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might need prayer. And we have the prayer banner up today. And we have several that will be praying. You can come over after or come over before if you'd like that. I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite you to come. We'll have three tables. Here at the front table we have a common cup which has wine. You take as your conviction leads. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. This story is so rich and thick just like the rest of your word with wisdom and insight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the teaching of your word, convict us of sin, convict us of sin. Convict us of where righteousness is found, not in our own resumes, but in Jesus's. And Lord, who, for those in the room who have not acknowledged or seen that, convict us of the judgment to come if we don't hope in Jesus's resume. May great fear fall on this congregation, great worship, great reverence of you, God, for your grace and your greatness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.